This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show, and Salut Babette. My name is Vivian Langford, and with me in the studio tonight are Kurt Johnson and Adele Mills. I'm going to ask them to turn their microphones on so they can say hello to you in a minute. uh, 3CR has been doing a marathon effort today on human rights, and um, so we're going to have four speakers today about human rights, how they intersect with climate change. So just hello to Kurt. How are you today? Very well, Viv. How's it going? Good. Thank you for coming in. And Adele? I'm good, thanks, Viv. You're going to hear Adele's voice a bit more in the future. She's joining our team today, and Kurt's come in to help her, so isn't that nice? Um, Well... Look, back before I knew about climate change, I'll tell you something, listeners. My children were very small and I wasn't back to work and I used to go around as an amnesty speaker. And once I was uh, at the Sydney Museum and there was a, we had a, amnesty had a campaign about the Amazon and David Suzuki was the voice of biodiversity. He was very worried about the plants and the, all the species there. And I was there to talk about the human dimension of that, which was the rubber tappers like Chico Mendes and the trade unionists who were getting murdered as they stood in the way of the big ranches and soya farms cutting into the jungle. It was important then to protect the Amazon and all the people living there. But now we realise that those forest defenders are also defending our future. It's not just local. They're doing a global job and they're being murdered. Still, a recent delegation of Indigenous Amazon leaders are so worried about what's happening to the lungs of the world that they went to London and their banner said part of the solution to climate change is stop the demolition of forests and stop killing forest people. So you can see how we need to speak up for those people who want to protect our climate. Worldwide, four people are murdered each week as they speak out against mines, plantations, logging and agribusiness. According to The Guardian, who's been uh, doing a campaign on this, they're recording and keeping a chronicle of every person who's murdered in this way, The Guardian said agribusiness is the biggest driver of violence as supermarket demand for soy, palm oil, sugarcane and beef give a financial incentive to plantations and ranchers to push into Indigenous and communal land. So I will name only one person tonight because I rather like to the sound of her. She was a radio and video journalist and I would like to dedicate the show to her. Her name was Efigenea Vazquez. She was from the Coconuco community in Colombia and she was shot during a protest, have a guess what, to liberate Mother Earth. Couldn't find anything sadder. So this is the context in which I have invited four people to speak about how climate change can rob people of their right to live on the land. We have a young man called Jungveer Singh. He's coming in a bit later, who's part of the growing strike for climate action of school students. We'll have Tim O'Connor from Amnesty International, who's worked in Sudan and Kiribati, where food and water are becoming scarce through droughts and floods and sea level rise. Also, Stella Miria Robinson, 
<clears throat> who is the roving ambassador for Queensland Pacific Islanders Council. She spoke to me in Canberra um, last week at the Human Face of Climate Change event in Parliament House. But first we have Dr Scott Leckie, who is with us in the studio. This is great for us listeners. There's no dodgy phone lines because he's with us. He is an international human rights lawyer and I found out that he gives courses on how climate change is affecting people's rights. He's the founder of a, an organisation called Displacement Solutions. It's working in places like Bangladesh and Myanmar and I'm delighted to meet him as the Beyond Zero Emissions Project is all about solutions and his group is working across the globe to ease the suffering of climate displacement. So welcome, Scott. Thank you very much, Vivian. Uh, do you find in your courses that looking at climate change through a human rights lens gives something new to the students? Well, I hope so. Um, that's the objective always. Um, I've been teaching courses on, on the, the specific links between human rights and climate change now for about 10 years um, in various law schools in Australia and overseas. And um, you know, we, we initiated that course originally because the human rights dimensions of climate change were largely left out of the international negotiations, um, national policies and legislation on these matters. And we wanted to do whatever we could do in order to draw the links between the effects of climate change on the pre-existing human rights of people uh, all around the world. So we're not really even talking about creating new rights necessarily, as much as we're talking about interpreting existing rights in ways that take climate change into account. Mm. I think mostly people think of climate change as an emergency situation where people are suddenly displaced by a flood, but then they go back after the flood's withdrawn. But you're working on more long-term displaced people. Well, yeah, unfortunately we have to because um, ever-growing numbers of people all around the world are being forced to leave the land that they've lived on often for centuries or millennia um, and return even after an acute storm or an acute disaster event uh, is no longer possible increasingly. So we're talking about small island nations, of course, in the Pacific that everybody's familiar with, Kiribati, tu Tuvalu, Tokelau, uh, parts of the Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea, the list yeah. goes on. Um, but we're also talking about really large countries with large populations and large coastal populations in particular, China, Vietnam, uh, the United States, India, whole range of other very highly populated countries. Uh, I mean, the list goes on. I mean, Indonesia, mm. uh, Brazil, the, it's just, it's virtually every country in the world, essentially, that's being affected by this. And the response thus far as much as we and thousands of other human rights people have tried, mm. is still very small in comparison to need. Yeah, and it's not a... Um, if you look at the long-range scientific data, it's not something that's going to, that should take us by surprise. We could prepare. I think that's where you've put your ideas into the legal frameworks in which an orderly move back, a retreat from the coast might happen. Is that what you've been thinking? Right. Well, you know, most people, most places have no desire whatsoever to move be mm. due to circumstances beyond their control, but they realize eventually that they may have to. So, you know, it's an odd position for a human rights lawyer to be in promoting the movement of people away from their traditional homes. But in fact, that is actually the best option for people all across the planet. And we're not talking here only about, you know, a few million here and a few million there. We're potentially talking mm. about hundreds of millions of people. Some estimates even rise above that level. Mm -hmm. um, over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, who will need a new place to go to in order to start life over? Because they're not 
longer, they're no longer able to stay where they are. Well, can you tell us something about a specific country, Bangladesh, where we know they have already achieved a lot with early flood warnings and providing temporary shelters for livestock and people when a weather disaster strikes. We had Dr Salim Ulhaq on this program and it was one of the most wonderful interviews we did and I'd like to talk to him again next year after the present climate conference to see how it's going but he told us they have long-term plans to relocate coastal people as the rising seas make the land too saline <clears throat> and apparently riverbank erosion there is displacing about 50,000 people or more every year so that's just disappearing land there's no way you can farm it anymore it's gone so what are you offering to keep these people on the land rather than swelling into the city slums well, for a lot of these people, staying on the land where they are is simply an impossibility, you know, both in the short term and, and most certainly in the medium and long term. So one of the things that we advocate for in countries like Bangladesh and elsewhere is the idea of uh, planned relocation, where national diagnostic work is done across an entire country, identifying all of the highly vulnerable areas. And then the second stage is identifying actual land parcels that they could be relocated to. And we've even done global research on this very question and, and calculated roughly, granted that, but it, nonetheless, we have a number which mm. we've come up with, which identifies the amount of land required across planet Earth in order to rehouse every single potential climate displaced family. And what we're talking about here is less than 1% of the world's land surface. In fact, one sixth of 1%, 0.14% of the planet's Earth's, planet Earth's land surface is what we need in order to rehouse people. We have the land available. What we don't have is the political will to make this happen. I'm finding this very hard to believe. You know, most land is taken. It's got fences around it. People own it, even ancestrally they own it. How can that be right? Are you talking about marginal land or what? There's a, for instance, well, in the first instance, there's state land, there's public land. Every single country in the world has some form of state land and public land. And those are the areas that we generally focus on first, because they're already held by the state. They don't have to be bought and paid for on the open market. And it's something that the state itself can manage and organize with, you know, the direction of the community driving the planned uh, relocation. A large percentage of the Earth's land surface is also degraded land, which now basically has no economic purpose, has no commercial function, um, may be owned by somebody, but is, is not particularly valuable. Mm. Um, so that's the second area that you would look at. And only in the third instance would you look at uh, land that's actually privately owned and has some sort of you know, economic value that can then be used uh, for purchase purposes. But the main point to ma be made is it's not, a, it's not a simple question of there being no place to go. There are places to go which are safe, which are adequately um, high up, that a future sea level rise will not affect mm -hmm. them. What, ha what has to be done, though, is the communities themselves have to drive this process, which is often forgotten. Mm -hmm. It's the most obvious thing, but it's often forgotten. It must never be imposed by anybody. And having land is only the first step of many that need to be made in order mm. for a successful relocation to take place. You have to have schools, you have to have jobs, you have to have infrastructure, you have to have all the institutions that you need in order to have a viable community. And, and we've worked on, on these issues in a whole range of countries. Sometimes it's reasonably successful, other times mm. less so. Well, last year at the Sustainable Living Festival, we had a, quite a few speakers talking about climate change as a security threat. And certainly the government of India sees Bangladesh as a security threat and they've got a fence all around, apparently guarded fence, armed fence all around the north part of Bangladesh to prevent climate refugees. So coming back to Bangladesh, what are the 
they doing there? You know, I, I was so impressed by Dr. Salim Ulhaq, though I'm sure, you know, he was giving me just the very general picture, but they seem to have a lot of community energy there. They've, they've got a well-organised community. Uh, what are they doing there that might, this country might in fact be a good place to model what you're thinking about, to get new laws in to make this easy? I mean, Bangladesh is, you know, for Australian listeners, is a very small country in terms of its size. There, two Bangladeshes could fit into Victoria. Okay, so and they have a population of 170 million. So imagine Victoria, (laughs) those of you who know Victoria, um, with 340 million people in it. And that's the type of scale that we're talking about. So bearing that in mind, they're actually trying their best. You know, I can really say they are trying hard, but there's a long way to go. Um, New policies are still needed. New laws Mm. are still needed. New programs are still needed to really facilitate the best possible outcome for most people. And we're talking here about 30 to 40 million people in Bangladesh who mm. will need to find a new place to live in the near term. That's a huge number. Mm. So we, we, for instance, have a very, very small, minute little program there um, that is really there both to help people but ultimately to make a point. And it's yeah. called the One House, One Family at a Time project. So we actually work with local NGOs there. One NGO is called IPSA, Y-P-S-A, Young Power and Social Action. And they do all of the local coordination and stuff. And we actually acquire land and, re- and build houses on this land for the most vulnerable families to make the point to the government that this is the approach you need to do. You need to be directly involved. You can't simply stand back. Because if you do stand back, even in a country like Bangladesh, let alone a wealthy one, Mm. people are going to migrate to the slums Mm. and have a a much rougher life than they have now. Right. Well, in 2008, you hosted a meeting in Canberra, I read, about, and it was about resettling the 6,000 people from the Carteret Islands, which are near to us. And uh, they're part of Papua New Guinea, but they're just near to Australia. A few years ago, we interviewed um, someone from there called Ursula Rakova about the uh, organisation she called Tuleli Paisa. And they were planting food gardens already on Bougainville to make the transition over. And I wonder what has happened since. Is that a good news story? (laughs) Well, we tried to help Ursula and Tuleli Paisa make it into a good news story. Um, But I would not really classify it as a good news story yet. Um, they have acquired a very small amount of land on Bougainville, mm. but Bougainville's political instability makes the move of people from the islands who generally mm. tend to be Polynesian into a Melanesian area a little bit difficult. Um, there's very little private or state land available on Bougainville. Yeah. Um, 97% of Bougainville is customarily owned and they won't give up their land to islanders. Yeah. Um, so even some of the islanders that have moved from the Carterets and the other atolls um, have actually moved back. Um, and so what we tried to do is put together a deal of a, of a man who was needing to sell an old cocoa plantation. Uh, I think it was 7,000 acres. It was huge. And he was going to sell it at a very reasonable price to the government of Papua New Guinea on the condition that they would resettle the islanders on it, each with five acres of land, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. It's a long, detailed story. Anyway, the the deal was done. Everything was ready to go. And then at the last minute, it fell through, not because of Ursula, not because of the mm. landowner, but because of uh, activities by the government. Mm. So, well, I didn't think you were going to say it was a happy story. Nothing is ever simple, but these are prototypes, aren't they? These are models for the future because a lot of people haven't woken up yet that it's actually happening. And so you're, you're preparing the future. I think that's laudable. Well, let's now move to Myanmar. Like listeners might remember, um, a few, quite a few years ago, Cyclone Nargis was horrendous and 
millions of people were displaced there. It was one of the most terrible coastal um, <clears throat> floodings, I think. And it was the first time I'd heard of the Rohingya people, who now we hear a lot about, and I heard that they were considered as non-citizens. And now half a million of them are refugees in Bangladesh, which is what just Dr. Salim Al-Haq told us. They'd just arrived when we spoke to him. And... Um, Half a million of them are in Bangladesh and another four million Burmese people are working in Thailand. So um, Burma, Myanmar is sort of bursting at the seams or not getting all this organised and you've been helping them with something called the Land Bank. What's that? Well, that's our objective. So uh, earlier this year, we, uh, based on extensive research in the country, we put together a plan to urge the government of Myanmar to establish a national climate land bank, which would basically hold land in trust for particularly vulnerable climate-based uh, uh, displacement communities. And um, so we've been pushing that with local NGOs. There's some interest. The idea is that unless you have an institution in place to actually mm. hold land for people who are not able to pay for it themselves when they are displaced, they're going to, again, end up in the slums or worse. Mm. So. Every country needs to have, ultimately, a climate land bank. Um, and we really need, ultimately, to recognize just how serious this problem is. As you mentioned before, even the United States, which is now a climate-denying country, you know, despite being historically the biggest CO2 emitter by far, um, even they recognize that it, this is the number one international threat to global peace and security. And yet the federal government there continues to deny it. And it's followed very closely, by the way, mm -hmm. by the federal government of Australia in that regard. Yeah. Well, I mean, you talked about Myanmar lose, um, finding some land. Well, they still got conflict over land. There's ethnic conflicts there, I think, as well. But um, one thing I read about Myanmar is a lot of the land has landmines on it. And so would that be, you know, putting a big international effort into reducing where landmines are in Laos and in Myanmar I don't know which other countries. There may be other countries where that sort of land can be freed up. Is that something? Well, it could be. I mean, we've worked also extensively on that issue in Myanmar. There's about mm. 5 million acres of land that oh. they continue, consider to be polluted by unexploded ordnance oh. and landmines. It's a massive amount of land, yeah. um, which now basically has no commercial value because no one dares go yeah. on it. Yeah. Um, it all belongs to somebody. Yeah. Somebody has claims over it. And unfortunately, what's happening is in the even the piecemeal efforts that have been made to demine some of this land, there's tremendous pressure by large corporations <laughs> and both international and national, mm. to get their hands on that land yeah. before the original owner can get it back. Yeah. So you have that whole process playing itself out in a very horrible way. So in, in principle, you know, that's definitely an idea. And degraded land generally is a, a very good option for finding land. But really what needs to happen in places like Myanmar and elsewhere is you first need to know where the communities are that will be displaced first, yeah. and then where can land be identified as close to those communities as possible to move them to in a process driven by the communities themselves. Surprisingly, that's what Fiji is doing, and Fiji is actually doing it better than just about any other country. They, they've identified, through the, the wishes of community members, about 42 villages that will eventually need to be resettled. They've resettled two or three so far, largely driven by the community themselves with state support. And that seems to be, on the surface at least, working reasonably well. That's fantastic. Well, that's 
really good news. Um, I, I noticed the paper you wrote about that was with a Norwegian organisation. I think the heading was Do No Harm. So the temptation right. for land grabbing is really big and you have to prevent that by putting in place a no harm kind of clause. Um, as climate change pushes people around, I wonder about citizenship. Does that need to be redefined? Um, I'm wondering whether the definition of refugees need to be redefined because nowadays being a victim of your land disappearing isn't doesn't necessarily make you a refugee in law. What do you think about that? Well, let's look at it purely in terms of the numbers first. Um, UNHCR, you know, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, the international agency responsible for looking after refugees and internally displaced people, they now have about 65 million people in the world to look after. Yep. Climate displacement is set to displace at least 500 million people, if not more. So perhaps 10 times or more. And there's no institution in place to look after them. There's very little funding available to facilitate solutions for these people. And so the question of citizenship, the right to migrate, all of those issues come to the fore mm -hmm. in that regard. And, you know, I think it's actually time. You know, David Attenborough in Poland the other day said, we are talking not just about some humanitarian crisis, we're talking about the end of civilization itself. Within 10 years, if we don't do what's needed, we are facing the irreversible effects of climate change, which could literally end our civilization. I mean, imagine that. Imagine we're talking about that. That's actually absolutely staggering. Mm. So what we need is not only a new way of defining what citizenship is and right, who are the rights holders of the world, but we need to kind of come together, use climate change, all the negative aspects of it, in a positive way to bring the entire human race together and realize that no one's going to get away from this. Every single person is going to be affected in some way. And we need to really put together the equivalent of a new Marshall Plan that was in place after the Second mm. World War and spend the literally trillions of dollars that would be needed to shift our entire global economic system from one based on fossil fuels into a regenerative direction based on alternative energy sources. And unless we do that, and we keep digging coal out of the ground and we keep digging oil out of the ground, we are dooming ourselves just for a few more stakes, mm. you know, for a few more fancy houses, for mm. a few more business class flights. And in my opinion, it's simply not worth it. So we need to start thinking in terms of, can we really only be citizens of a certain country or shouldn't we all be actually citizens of some larger global polity that ensures better than it does now that everybody everywhere has the same rights that are as enforceable as they are anywhere else in a context where there's ever-growing amounts of democracy, ever-growing amounts of participation by all of the seven and a half billion people, none of whom can live a life without there being an earth mm. to support them. Mm. Well, yes, I thought you'd say that because you have, you have a, another organization. What's that one about citizenship? Um, I have another organization called Oneness World, which mm. is all about how do we actually make this shift from mm. a world of nation states that we've had ever since 1648. Yeah. Um, everything else in the world has evolved dramatically in those 350 years, except the way we organize ourselves politically. Yeah. So let's have a global discussion about that. The similarities between human beings everywhere are far greater than the differences. Mm. And yet we continue to define ourselves on the basis of our differences instead of our similarities. So we also just recently started a podcast called Jointly Venturing, which explores these issues. Um, so listeners can try to check that out on the internet too and listen to that. And we really want to get a debate going. Like, isn't it time 
to move things forward. We have the internet, we have global travel, we have shared culture, we have so many shared experiences now. Why don't we also apply that to the whole status of citizenship? Yeah. We can be a citizen uh, and a person who is associated with a village, which is then associated with a state, which is then associated with a nation state, none of which detracts from any of the others. Let's just raise it up one more level and also become world citizens yes. in a formal way. Well, we're hearing a lot now how people are saying around the world in democracies that the, the citizen citizenry is way ahead of the government. So the people who are in the government on short-term contracts, as it were, are kind of terrified of making a mistake. But the people in the, in the larger state are well aware of what needs to be done. And right. polls show that, so maybe you could have global voting um, if we were global citizens. But one last question before, I think we have to have you back sure. next year to talk about the kind of policies and... Um, um, that sort of thinking. I don't know anyone else who's talking like that, but we'll we'll get onto it. Um, but look, I wanted to ask you about the shock doctrine. It's one of my favourite books by Naomi Klein, and she showed how um, you know there were just theories that just took advantage of emergencies, and not just climate emergencies, military sort of emergencies like in Chile, um, and whole societies can just change quite quickly as a result of people being taking advantage of them. And those people are out there now, I think, ready to take advantage of any climate crisis. And um, she said in Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, uh, it provided an ideal chance for land grabs and disempowered. And the vice president of the USA, Pence, it was one of the architects of that, apparently, in New Orleans. It's in her book, No is Not Enough. Mm-hmm. And um, in a state of emergency, I think rights and laws are often suspended and I wondered what laws can be put in place to protect the rights of displaced people as climate events become more frequent and intense. Well, that's a big question. Um, but yeah, the shock doctrine is is indeed a great book, and it makes the point that you know uh, governments and multinational corporations and others use disasters as a pretext for achieving what they could never otherwise achieve, whether it's in terms of land grabbing or or resource resource grabbing it could be in the conflict in the context of a conflict like the Iraq conflict you had large corporations that made literally billi- billions of dollars um, as a result of uh, uh, of the conflict um, but it happens increasingly in disaster zones as well and you know for a start we need to I've just come back from Nepal where I was working on post earthquake reconstruction issues and one of the positive things we found there There was a lot of potential for things like land grabbing after the 2015 earthquakes, but there was actually very little land grabbing that took place. And there was really a a concerted effort by the government to apply essentially a rights-based approach to the reconstruction process. So there are good examples as well, and I think a growing number of, of organizations and movements around the world are realizing that. Well, what would you like? What is your demand at the moment? You know, we're at this very pivotal moment. We're meeting at COP in Poland. Um, What's your sort of demand? What do you most want to see? You're a lawyer, so on the international law frame. I think, as I mentioned before, we need to realize just how serious this problem is. I mean, the current debate today in Poland centers on whether whether the the nations there are going to welcome a report that says governments need to stop burning fossil fuels and reduce by 50% within 10 years, or whether we should take note of that report. The United States, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Russia, and tacitly Australia are saying we should not welcome this report. We should merely take note of it. I mean, that's an outlandish thing. I mean, it's absolutely astronomical. It shows that governments like those are completely under the 
control of the fossil fuel industries, mm. the ones that have caused climate change. So we need to reverse things like that. We need to give more and more people a voice and say that enough is enough. We need to shift gears. We need to change entirely the way we organize ourselves mm. when it comes to these matters. And we need to ha put in place something equivalent to the Marshall Plan that really takes into account just how serious this question is. Unless we do that, we need to heed the words of David Attenborough again and know that truly civilization is at risk and that's a situation that no one wants to be a part of yeah well i'd love to talk to you all day because that's fantastic and we'll definitely invite you next year well, thanks very much when you're in melbourne we'll you know get you in to talk a bit more because really listeners these people who know a lot and who go around the world and see all these examples they have the synthesis most of us are locked in a kind of little tribal mentality i think of what our media shows us and what we see at night on tv and we don't know it we don't really know it you know it so that's fantastic so dr scott leckie has been our guest his organization is called displacement solutions and i noticed on his website that great thanks was given to an eco store in sorrento so they help, they help build some houses for the dis displaced people in Bangladesh. And I'd like to ask you just one last thing. What are the way people can help? You know, yours, yours is a big organisation, but people can help as um, lawyers, but maybe also as just benefactors. Yeah, well, as I mentioned, we have this very small program called the One House, One Family at a Time Project in Bangladesh. And we accept donations from people all around the world. It can be as little as $1 um, that we put towards the construction of houses for extremely vulnerable people in um, in coastal areas in Bangladesh. We're on the second phase now. We've, we're on, we're building just the, the fifth to the ninth house. We've just acquired the land for the second land site. And 100% of all donations goes straight to Bangladesh, and none of it goes to us. We just okay. simply do it pro bono. Okay, thank you. So that was Dr. Scott Leckie. And after the break, we're going to hear from Stella Maria Robinson. She's the roving ambassador for the Pacific Islands Council. Cyclones Cast is pretty grim. Shock Do you ever feel like just switching off? Well, don't. Switch on to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show every Monday at 5pm on 3CR and beat the doom and gloom to find out the latest actions and research in your community. BZE Radio at 5pm on Monday. Turn the tide, literally. I'm with Stella Miria Robinson, who represents Pacific Island people, Canberra. and we're at a function in Canberra called the, Fa the Human Face of Climate Change. And I've been thinking after her talk that non-action, like Australia's no opening up the Adani mine, opening up the Northern Territory for fracking, all of these actions, and which are inaction on climate change, are having a terrible effect on people's human rights if they're living on a Pacific island. So Stella, Miria, would you please tell us in a little bit more about that? Okay, when we're talking about human rights, you know, it is not just about, you know, human rights for people like refugees and people who are suffering from persecution and, you know, who uh, are coming from war zones, etc., etc. Human rights is also about the right to live where we live on the globe, whether it is close to the ocean, up on a mountain or wherever. For Pacifica people, we are islanders. We are part of the ocean people. We are part of the island people. This is our inheritance and this is our heritage. When we are removed from those 
places and when we are removed from our communities and when we are removed from our way of life, to me that is abuse of human right and freedom to live where we live and how we live. And it is for that reason, in my talk today, I have talked about our rights as Pacific Islanders entitled to a place on this globe, on this earth, where we all live, which we all share. So what I'm saying is that what happens in one part of the world affects those of us who live in another part of the world, but also it's the same world. So whether it is mining, whether it is in China, whether it is in Australia, or wherever it is, what happens in that part of that world, whether it is from the extraction of fossil fuels or whatever it may be, to us from the Pacific Islands, it places us in danger, enormous danger. It challenges our rights as human beings to live where we live, in our own places, in our own homes on the planet. We had um, the former president of Kiribati here, Anote Tong, and I interviewed him some time back and he said his main thing was that Australia just first off should stop subsidising fossil fuels. Don't open new mines, obviously, but just don't give subsidies. What do you think really practically Pacific Island people would like to see in rich nations like Australia who are exporting fossil fuels and polluting at a great rate? I think the challenge there um, is the situation where it's not so much the big polluters anymore from the past who are... um, doing this. It is the newer developing countries who are in this race to wealth create, who are saying to the Western and other worlds and, you know, industrialists saying, well, you've already gone out there and you've already gotten all you wanted from the natural resources of the world. You've built your wealth on that. Now it's our turn. We want to be wealthy as well. We want to be able to take advantage of what resources are available out there. So I see this as also being another serious, serious challenge um, for people in the Pacific Islands because for as long as there are people with that mindset, we will never, ever be able to keep our homes. Well, human rights are enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and if we invaded your country and uh, destroyed your homes and destroyed your children, that, that would be obviously a war crime. Do you feel that climate, um, climate is bringing up this sort of inequality that uh, the, the powers that actually um, are extracting and polluting are in fact acting like colonising or previous you know, invading invading? armies. Absolutely. We are still being taken advantage of, um, paying the consequence for the price and the consequences of other people or other countries, um, what I call misdemeanors. Uh, We are having to pay the price and it really, really has to stop. It really has to stop. Um, It is up to their consciences Forget about the greed, forget about the wealth creation and let's try to save the planet and save humankind.
Thank you. Just say your, uh, the name of your organisation. We've been speaking to Stella Miria Robinson. But what is your organisation called? I'm the roving ambassador currently for the Pacific Islands Council of Queensland. Thank you. Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Mission show. Um, that was a, a lovely speaker I spoke to, Stella Miria Robinson, and it was a wonderful conf uh, conference in Canberra called The Human Face of Climate Change. And if you hang on after the Beyond Zero show now at 6 o'clock, you will hear some more from that conference. I taped quite a few interviews with people there, uh, religious leaders and uh, really sort of thoughtful people, plus uh, people who fought bushfires, a doctor, um, Richard Di Natale was there. There were a lot of people there trying to sort of change the culture. Like our previous speaker said, we have to have a massive change and part of it will be in on the ideas level. So um, Stella Miria was at that conference and I thank her for being on the show. Now we've got a person in the studio, a young man from uh, just finished the VCE this year. His name is Jagveer Singh. And he has been one of the leaders of the Student Strike for Climate Action. You might have heard on the TV that the Scott Morrison locked them out of Canberra. And when I was in Canberra, it had ha that had happened the day before. And people were furious about that, that all these people had come and their teachers had come with them, their parents, a lot of them. And uh, Scott Morrison said they should just go back to school, that they shouldn't be taking an interest in politics at all, which was very insulting because most students at that age, are, we expect them to be pretty savvy about all these things. Um, so, Jack Veer, welcome to the Beyond Zero show. And um, thank you very much for coming into the studio. We've got live guests. It's so much better. Could you tell us for the record what the student strike has been all about? Thanks for having me. Um, so the student strike is a movement organised by students, for students, uh, young school students um, who are saying enough is enough and we need action on climate change. So young students across the country in Sydney, uh, Melbourne and even in regional areas have come together and they said we're going to go on school strike until our government acts on climate change. And what did your schools did? did was it just your school um, protested or what? Quite frankly, um, my school wasn't the most supportive of the strike. We've had other schools that were really supportive of it. Yeah. Um, so students across the country came together um, on the 30th of November and in, outside parliaments across mm. the nation. Here in Melbourne, we had around 5,000 people, oh, yeah. um, students, their parents coming and standing mm. in solidarity. Um, so yeah, we like some schools have passed passed motions um, supporting them. I know in Sydney, teachers have endorsed it. So um, yeah, we've had a lot of support from support from schools. And were you a speaker at some of those rallies? Uh, yes, I was. I was at uh, I was speaking um, last Friday at the rally in Melbourne. Mm. Um, well, good on you. This is very good. It's, it's a lot of people are frightened of getting up and speaking in public, but you must be motivated. What what is motivating you? What is motivating me is the fact that, you know, it's my future that's on the line. Um, for too long, government have gotten away with not acting on climate change. Um, and I'm kind of scared about the kind of future that I'm going to have, the kind of risk that climate change poses um, onto the future that I will have. So, you know, it's the idea of having a safe future, not just for myself, but for kids across Australia and across the globe who are already in some really bad conditions. Um, so, yeah, the fact that I want a safe future for all of us. 
Yeah, well, it's Human Rights Day today, and one of the most important rights in the Human Rights Declaration is the rights of the child. And I don't know if they mention anything about intergenerational uh, theft, but I think a lot of people are starting to think people who are young like you, I'll be dead by the end of this century, but you won't be, you'll be still here. And you'll be seeing some of these things that the scientists are predicting as horrific. So do you feel that that is a kind of an injustice, really? Absolutely, yeah. I think we're being robbed um, by uh, like our future is being robbed by people that are currently in power. There's absolutely, um, you know, when they're making climate policy, firstly, we don't have a climate policy right yeah. now. Um, but even those parties that do, you know, they, they don't really focus on the human aspect or um, the societal implications of the policy. Mm. They're more concerned about um, the economic impact on society. So um, I do think that, you know, we need to... Th- respond to this crisis and that's what it is a crisis when you respond to this crisis um as community uh, and think about the communities and individuals that are suffering yeah. and put them ahead you know think about the um people who are disadvantaged and are vulnerable put them ahead and um ensure that they can have a safe future as well yes well uh, this is a global movement and the Prime Minister didn't seem to understand that students around the world are discussing what is to be done about climate change yep. and with an urgency that he just doesn't feel. I don't think it's worth spending time converting him, you know, going to visit him and persuading him. Nothing will hurt him more than pressure at the elections. And But I'd like to know what you would say to him if you did meet him. Well, if I did meet him, I'd ask him, firstly, request him... Um, <laughs> that it's time to stop listening to the coal lobby, you know, um, and start listening to the people, the constituent that he claims to represent. You know, he's the Prime Minister of Australia. As the Prime Minister, he's supposed to represent the country. Um, and we know many people, uh, survey after survey, has shown that people are opposed to the dining coal mine. People want to just transition to renewable energy as soon as possible, things that Scott Morrison wouldn't even talk about in Parliament. <laughs> so um, I'd say, yeah, start listening to the people. Otherwise, you know... The next election isn't far off. No, well, he he possibly will even lose it, but there will be the opposition leader will then come up. So, but he also will be paying attention to the coal lobby and what the workers in the coal, you know, the jobs that are yeah. meant to be promised in the Daniel. So, what would you say to him? Oh yeah, Bill Shorten. Um, although he does have a climate policy, it's just simply not good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got a climate policy which does focus on renewables, which is a good thing. But I suppose you can't really ha- have a climate policy if you don't mentioned the fact that we're not going to have no new coal mines open or no new Mm. gas projects. So uh, with Labor's climate policy, we do have some serious issues regarding, um, you know, are we going to see new coal mines open under them? Um, That's something we don't want. So if you're serious about climate change, you're going to stop building new coal mines and, you know, start investing in renewable energy um, and have a more renewable future, I suppose. So that's my message to Bill Short. <laughs> yeah. Well, when I was in Canberra, just as I said last week, uh, th- they've got a new parliamentary friends group called the Parliamentary Friends of Climate Action. And I thought, oh, that's possibly a good chance for people like you, people like me, to go and lobby. You know, because I think the problem with our democracy, it's very hard to actually meet those people and mm. talk to them, even on the air. You know, we've talked to Mark Butler, and I, I like talking to him. He seems to have a very depth knowledge of climate change and of all the ways of achieving you know a great reduction in emissions he's got the he's got it but he also has to get elected every year and and popular opinion swings it this way and he takes the short-term 
approach or his party does. So I think the the lobby group will be good. Do you agree that you don't have much access as a citizen to the people in power? Yeah, we don't. And I think, um, you know, there could be a lot done to improve the access that people have to their representatives. And um, yeah, I definitely think there's a lot more to do in that case, you know, making people accessible to go and talk to their politicians, discuss their concerns. Um, you know, you could write to your politician, but then you get back the generic reply. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah I do that's think... right. You get that. And that's like a slap on the face, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, basically, because, uh-huh. um, you know, uh, electorate officers, they already have like sample templates <laughs> that they send. Uh, so uh, I do. Yeah. Like, I do think there needs to be more done in order to make sure that everyday citizens can go have a chat with their MPs and ministers to talk about important things. Well, how could we get the long-term solutions that we all know about? Well, I think we all, people like us know about it. People like you know about it. A lot of students know about it. The solutions are obvious, but they're massively expensive and important. Like a huge amount of energy has yeah. to go into transforming a whole society's source of energy and agricultural practices and all of that. That's a huge thing. So how can we get that long-term solution when the governments are all onto short-term, um, short-term sort of? Yeah, yeah. No, certainly. So um, thinking. I suppose how we could start. Well, um, you know, part of the three aims of the climate strike movement is. One, stop Badani. Two, no new coal or gas projects. And three, 100% renewable energy by 2030. You know, we're not asking you to turn 100% renewable in the next year because yeah. we know um, it's kind of tough. But um, I suppose, you know, we, we need to install more um, solar panels and solar batteries. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that's a good way of... Um, transforming our energy mix over yeah. the next decade um, and, you know, committing that you're not going to build any new coal mines mm-hmm. and that we exploring different kinds of um, energy solutions is one way we're looking at the long-term, um, long-term uh, solutions. Yeah. But I suppose what we currently have is we're not even looking at short-term solutions like, you know, all, pe- all politicians are concerned about is yeah. whether or not they're going to get elected at the next election yeah. <laughs> and well, how much they're going to get donated by, uh, donations mm. by the coal lobby. So, mm. um, yeah, well, we also need to have a focus on short-term, but um, obviously the long-term focus needs to be um, heavier, I guess. Well, I think if Bill Shorten and Scott Morrison were listening in tonight, I don't think they listened to this show, but if they were, they'd be a little bit worried because you've got a bit of a cynical edge to what you're saying. You know, you are disbelieving that they're helping you, that they're there to run the country. You're disbelieving that their letters to you um, are serious, taking you seriously. And I think, to me, that is the problem. A lot of citizens are thinking, well, you know, vote for an independent or vote for anybody because these people are just too locked into a system that's not working on this big, massive problem. Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, we've tried meeting up with Scott Morrison, Bill Bill Shorten closed um, when people were in Parliament, I think, on Tuesday last week. Um, You know, uh, Scott Morrison uh, Morrison said that he's going to come out and meet with all the students who are striking, but ended up bailing last minute. uh, we uh, students uh, striked outside Bill Shorten's office to meet him, and Bill Shorten closed his office and ran away. <laughs> so, um, yeah, these leaders just don't want to talk to them. And mm. why would people want to vote for them if they're not even ready to listen to the yeah. constituents, yeah. let alone act on their concerns? Yeah, I agree with you. So something has to happen, and I, I know it's happening now with you people your generation coming up but you'll have to go the next step going into university courses or going into work where you can make 
make things happen. And I'd like to know for listeners going towards Christmas and summer holidays, they're not just going to go and sleep on the beach, are they? With, with such a massive crisis on our hands. So I think some people are going to mobilise and go up to stop Adani. I know Bob Brown said he would be organising a convoy of cars and people are signing up to go with that. But um, what, what can people do to add their strength to this? Is it just to go home and get informed on this when you've been very busy at school all year, go home and get informed? Or what do you... Are you joined together with people who have meetings or what? Yeah, there's certainly many ways to get involved. Um, you know, you could support us on social media. Um, you could um, write to your local MP and local politicians. Uh, write to call Bill Shorten's office, tell him that you don't want the Adani coal mine. Yeah. Um, call Scott Morrison and tell him that you want re-election on climate change and not just all talk. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you could do those things. Of course, um, you know, if you have more time, come and help us out on the campaign. Yeah. Um, help us, um, you know, we're running an event uh, on Wednesday morning outside Bill Shorten's office um, to get it, to send him a message that, you know, we want re-election on climate okay. change. Say that again, Wednesday morning? Wednesday morning outside Bill Shorten's office at around 8 o'clock, I think, um, oh. from memory. Um, yeah, so we're going outside Bill Shorten's office telling him that uh, it's time to act now. Yeah. Um, you know, the Labour conference, a national conference coming up next week and... The Adani coal mine is not even on the agenda. No. <laughs> like, it's such a big issue, but it's not on the agenda. So, um, you know, they need to get serious about um, this issue. Do you think it's come to that, that we should expect governments to stop projects? Because they're going to start saying, but you can't, once someone signed a contract, you can't just annihilate a contract. Um, you know, uh, do you think, is that where we've got to that stage where we are actually expecting a government to intrude and say, no, they can't go ahead on I mean, climate grounds? <laughs> Yeah, I think certainly. I mean, uh, you know, you look at the water licence that Adani's been given. He's going to suck up millions of tonnes of water um, from Queensland. And Queensland's already in drought conditions. So I don't see why we shouldn't be able to act, um, you know, to put our, our farmers um, ahead of miners and, mm. you know, uh, people who desperately need water. He's been giving, he, like, he's been allowed to take suck up waters from yeah. Queensland for free, millions of litres of water. So, um I think it's time to put other people ahead of these, you know, miners. Yeah, well, thank you for coming in. I just, um, with listeners, we're just talking to Jangveer Singh, who's a, a person who's just finished the VCE. Can I just ask you a question yeah. about your education? You said your school wasn't too keen on this, but you yourself are way, you know, you're on top of a lot of the issues and you've thought about it. So how did you get this way? Was this just by your own um Research or yeah, friends well, or how did you um, get this on? Our school, school does have a green team though, so um, oh, yeah. you know which works on making the school more sustainable yeah. at a local level. You know, like we implement uh, recycling programs at school, making sure that the school does what it can to yeah. help with the bigger bigger problems. So yeah. you know, I've got links at at school and my friends uh, who come along to rallies with me yeah. and help out. So but I do have. Do you that discuss support. it at school in the classroom with the teachers? Be talking about these ideas, these big problems of society. Certainly. Uh, yeah. In humanities, I know um, when we learn about geography, we uh, talk about issues affecting yeah. um, you know, people in different parts of the country. So, um, yeah, we do talk about it. I know I did physics and my physics mm. teacher is very passionate about it. We talk about thermodynamics and yeah. um, things like that. So, 
yeah, we've discussed these issues in class, and you know, we know the vast majority of scientists are, mm-hmm. um, you know, are on consensus, and they know that this is a real issue, and we know the solutions as well. It's just that our leaders aren't ready to act. <laughs> no, I think they need to go back to school myself. <laughs> so thank you very much for coming in and telling us your point of view, and I hope that it just it gets, gains momentum into next year. So thank we've you very much. we've had some very passionate speakers tonight. We had Dr. Leckie from Displacement Solutions. He's also a university teacher about law, international law, and how to ease this um, population into safety, which is becoming very unsafe with climate change every year. We also heard from Stella Miria Robinson, who I met in Canberra at an event called The Human Face of Climate Change, and she's the roving ambassador for the Queensland Pacific Island Council. Um, we didn't have Tim O'Connor from Amnesty because we couldn't get him on the line, but luckily we had Jangavir in the uh, in the studio, so he took a bit. Um, took we were able to talk a bit longer with him, and he's a young person who went on the school strike for climate action. Um, I want you to support all of these things, listeners, if you have time and if you have the idea. Displacement solutions, they want volunteers and benefactors. The student strike want people to go along to Bill Shorten's um, office at 8, 8 o'clock next Wednesday. Um, Amnesty International certainly wants people to join their well-organised uh, campaigns on behalf of, for example, climate refugees. So please get behind those things and also get behind Beyond Zero Emissions. We're going to be on holiday now um, until the end of January but on the radio show, but we'll be repeating our best shows, which Kurt has packaged up so you will have non-stop entertainment and nourishment of your mind. Now, I'd like to advertise something um, as well for Sunday, um, the 16th of December. Um, There is a group there at St Philip's Anglican Church, which is 146 Hoddle Street, Abbotsford, and at four o'clock on Sunday, they're going to have a thing called Carols Against Coal. And they came into the studio yesterday and I recorded three of their carols. And I think we might have time for for um, Away in the Arctic right now. And uh, I'll, I'll announce again at the end of where you can hear them sing on Sunday, 4pm. Away in the Arctic. Fear. We 
must get a move on, not sit on the fence. So what are the beds worth in dollars and cents? While politicians sit and talk. Deck the state with solar panels. Thank you very much to that beautiful choir. You can hear them, listeners, on Sunday the 16th of December um, at 4pm, St Philip's Anglican Church, 146 Hoddle Street, Abbotsford, and it's called Carols Against Coal. The people involved were Julia, Gwendolyn, Robert, Callum and Rhiannon. Thank you very much for them to coming in. And thank you to the team tonight. We've got Roger, who's not here, who does the podcast. Thank you to Roger for a whole year's work. Thank you to Adele, who's just new, who started out. Thank you to Kurt, who's been with us all the way and has made his own shows and is going to make more interesting shows next year. Thanks to Andy, who's not here. He's gone overseas for a holiday, but thank you to him and thank you to 3CR, who have been so supportive to us, and to Erin, who's done her own two shows every six weeks. Um, 
beside the fork that I do. So I'm really pleased. We've done a, a lot of work this year and I hope that you listeners can go back over some of the podcasts, pass them on to other people. I know that we have a th- many, many listeners here, but a lot of people are not getting this sort of message, which, which as you can see, is very um, serious and nourishing. It's not... Uh, fly-by-night kind of stuff but we like doing it so thank you everybody in the team thank you to bze who is underpinning the whole show so have a happy holiday everybody and we'll see you um back live on air at the end of january and in the meantime you'll have some holiday shows from us